0: Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee, all the best. A couple of months ago, I did an Instagram Live with Bergen Hyde of Womb Circle. And Bergen mentioned that in deconstructing our internal patriarchy, which is something that I think a lot about, there was some work in that process that's done with the head. It's rational, intellectual work. And when she said that, I envisioned kind of being out in the sunlight, kind of above ground. And then she said, and there's different work that's done more with the heart and the gut, emotional soul work. And when she said that, I envisioned being down deep underground, like in a cave or in the bowels of the earth. And I realized that most of the work that I've done over the past year on this podcast has been head work. Like, above ground in the sun, defining terms and tracing historical patterns and analyzing books and analyzing laws. I feel like I have also done a lot of emotional work. I have felt a lot along the way, too. Listeners know by now that I do not shy away from a laugh or a cry. So it hasn't all just been completely rational and void of emotion. But I have told Bergen before, we met for lunch before we did our Instagram Live and I told her that I have not really felt ready to go into the belly of the earth and have my own personal reckoning with this stuff. Kind of to give myself credit, I, I have felt personally called to do an intellectual academic project, and it's been a critically important part of my personal life and something that I felt that I wanted to offer to the world. But there's a part of me that knows that I need to do a journey down and a journey in. It reminds me of what the Greeks call a katabasis, which is a, a journey down into the underworld or a cave. But I'm kind of scared of what I might find down there. And I don't know if I'm up for it right now. <laughs> I don't know if I'm up for the the anger and the grief that I might feel if I did that soul work. So I was thinking about that when I did that Instagram life, live with Bergen. But. Then within a a day of each other, Bergen and a very dear long-term friend happened to bring up Women Who Run With the Wolves by Clarissa Pinkola Estes which is a book about this very soul work. And so the fact that two different friends mentioned it right within about 24 hours of each other, I took it as a sign and Bergen said she would do the episode with me. So down into the cave we go. <laughs> and Bergen is here today with us and I want to welcome you, Bergen. I'm so, so grateful that you're here to be our guide and uh, kind of take us on this journey with you through this book and through this material that's really as I understand it, kind of your life's work. So thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Amy. I just, I adore you. I'm so grateful for the work you're doing. And I'm I'm really thrilled to have this conversation with you.
0: Thanks. I adore you too. And, and so I'm really fascinated and grateful for your work too. Um, okay. The next step is to introduce the author. So I'll do that quickly and then we'll jump into the book. Clarissa Pincola Estes was born in January 1945. She is of Native American and Mexican heritage, and she grew up in a rural village with a population of just 600 people near the Great Lakes. So not far from where you're from, actually, Bergen. Yeah, totally. Midwest. Yeah. So she probably loved cold water, too. (laughs) She was raised in the now-vanished oral tradition of her war-torn immigrant refugee families who could not read or write or did so haltingly, and for whom English was their third language, overlying their ancient natal languages. As an older child, she was adopted into an immigrant and refugee family of majority Magyar and minority Danube Swabian. And I have never had never heard of that term before. It just means from Hungary and Germany, but the tribal people of those countries, and, and I should mention, too, that this bio is taken from her website. So this is the way she wanted to present her background. Uh, so she says, They were wise in the ways of nature, planting animals, and making everything from scratch, from shoes to songs. Thus, she was raised immersed in the oral tradition of old mythos and stories, songs and chants, dances, and ancient healing ways. Her writing is deeply influenced by her family, people who were hands-on farmers, shepherds, hopsmeisters, wheelwrights, weavers, orchardists, tailors, cabinet makers, lace makers, knitters, horsemen and horsewomen from their old countries. Dr. Estes is a poet and a lifelong activist in service of the voiceless. As a post-trauma recovery specialist and psychoanalyst who works with persons traumatized by war, exiles and torture, and as a journalist covering stories of human suffering and hope. She received her doctorate from the Union Institute and University, and it was in ethno-clinical psychology, the study of social and psychological patterns of cultural and tribal groups with an emphasis in indigenous history. Her book that we'll be discussing today, Women Who Run With the Wolves, Myths and Stories of the Wild Woman Archetype was on the New York Times bestseller list for 144 weeks. As a post-trauma specialist, Estes began her work in the 1960s at a veterans hospital in Illinois, and she was honored to work with World War One, World War II, Korean, and Vietnam combat soldiers who were living with quadriplegia, and they were impas- incapacitated by the loss of their limbs from the war. She's worked at other facilities caring for severely injured castaway children, um, shell-shocked war veterans, which we now know... or Referred to as PTSD and their families. And she's worked at men's penitentiaries and women's penitentiaries. And um, she just goes to where pe- people are most in need, it feels. Um, she's worked with, you know, women who have suffered childbearing loss, the families of murder victims. And one thing that also touched me on a personal level is that she served the Columbine High School community after the massacre that was touching for me personally. But um, she's worked with survivors of the September 11th attacks. And she testifies before state and federal legislatures on welfare reform, educational and and school violence, child protection, mental health, just A long list of trying to make the world a better place, especially for the most vulnerable in this world. So I was so moved reading about her life and just felt like, wow, this is a person who is truly using every moment of her life in the service of her fellow human beings. So I'm really moved by her example.
1: So the book, Women Who Run With the Wolves, is sometimes called like a feminist Bible. So because it deals specifically with female archetypes, that in our particular culture and our time have been denigrated and demonized and that we've disassociated from. And so it really speaks to the parts of ourselves that we lose touch with when we're surviving a patriarchal world. Um, And our own internalized kind of patriarchal landscape is being navigated by Clarissa Pinkola Estes in this book. So the format of the book is set up as a series of stories. So each chapter focuses on a different myth or story that she's curated over her time um, exploring myths and stories both from her childhood and then in her professional life. And so it's kind of similar to the Bible in that way, that it has like a series of stories that kind of feel almost like a sacred text, but it's in this feminine language that is really, Mm -hmm. um, at least for me, was very, uh, what's the word, like disorienting at first. I was like, (laughs) oh, like it took me a while to kind of get used to thinking of things in this other paradigm. And then at the, at the end of each story, Essa shares her analysis and her commentary on the archetypes and the meaning of the story from her perspective. So she kind of helps you break down um, the symbols and how it might apply to you as a, particularly she's focusing on women living in a patriarchal um, world.
0: Okay. Well, let's, we're going to highlight a couple of her stories from the book. So we're going to start with chapter two is the beginner initiation, and it's the story of Bluebeard. So I'll read, I mean, this is a, a because it's an archetype and it it, it um, appears in different cultures, but Dr. Estes is telling it the way she learned it from her aunt, who is, from the heartland of europe and so i'm just going to read her words in telling this version of the story a giant man named bluebeard with an eye for women once courted three sisters at the same time they were frightened of his indigo colored beard so at first when he called at their house they hid but he persisted and then invited them on an outing in the forest along with their mother He brought horses for them to ride and fancy food and told them enchanting stories, so the sisters began to think he wasn't so bad. At the end of the day, they were all chatting about how fun it had been, but then the older two sisters' suspicions and fears returned, and they vowed not to see Bluebeard again. But the youngest sister thought if a man could be that charming, then perhaps he was not so bad. The more she talked to herself, the less awful he seemed. So he asked the youngest sister to marry him, and she said yes, because he seemed like a very elegant man. So they went to live in his castle in the woods. One day, Bluebeard told his young wife that he was going away for a day so she could invite her sisters over and explore the whole castle if she wanted. He handed her a ring with hundreds of keys and told her to use all of them except the tiniest key with the scrolls on top. And at this part, I was like, oh, it's Beauty and the Beast. Like, totally. except the West Wing, right? That's <laughs> exactly
1: like, right. <laughs> yep.
0: Suddenly, I want to go to the West Wing. There's <laughs> this like ominous, oh, no. So, but back to Estes. So she said, so he left and the sisters opened every single door with every single key, but couldn't find a door that fit the tiniest key. Then, down deep in the cellar, they saw a little door mysteriously closing, and when they tried to open it back up, it was locked. Of course, they tried the tiny little key with the scrolls, and voila! It opened into a room so dark they needed to light a candle. So a candle was lit and held into the room and all three women screamed at once for in the room was a mire of blood and the blackened bones of corpses were flung about and skulls were stacked in corners like pyramids of apples. They panicked and then the wife looked down at the key and saw that it was dripping with blood. She put it in her pocket. It bled and bled until her dress was stained with blood down to the hem. She scrubbed it with everything she could think of. She burned it. Nothing would stop the bleeding. So she hid it in her wardrobe and it bled and bled all over her clothes, a flood of blood in the wardrobe. Her husband came home and demanded the ring of keys and immediately noticed that the tiny one was missing and knew his wife had betrayed him. He found the key in her wardrobe. Now it's your turn, my lady. He screamed and dragged her down the hall into the tiny cellar until they were before the terrible door. Bluebeard merely looked at the door with his fiery eyes and the door opened for him. There lay the skeletons of all his previous wives. He's about, okay, and so there I was like, no! like i didn't know that <laughs> like i didn't <laughs> i couldn't tell that that was what, where that was going that yeah. it was his previous wives yikes okay i'm gonna i'm yeah, gonna I paraphrase a so little much. bit to, i co- love that to you condense. have
1: this organic experience with it where you get to the that part and you're like
0: no <laughs> <laughs> i'm like a little kid yeah i really did not know what this story was was about so it's I'm like, really yeah. intense yeah it's really yeah intense. it's super intense yeah. and the blood ugh, yeah Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So he's about to behead her, but she begs for 15 minutes so she can go prepare for death. And make peace with god and he relents and lets her go so she sends her sisters up to the ramparts of the castle and says sisters do you see our brothers coming and she calls this again and again but they say no i don't see anybody no one's coming to help but then so finally they hear like these women are like huddled together at the top of the castle and they hear bluebeard thundering up the stairs and they can hear like stones falling because he's thundering so heavily on the stairs He's coming to kill his wife, but in the nick of time, the brothers do arrive. They storm the castle on their horses, and they find Bluebeard. And then it says, quote, striking and slashing, cutting and whipping, beating Bluebeard down to the ground, beating him at last, and leaving for the buzzards his blood and gristle. Yeah,
1: this is so good.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's so good, yeah. It's a good story. Okay, but then, uh, Okay. So and it's grisly, I, right? It's, yes. it's bloody
1: and gory. Yeah, it's gross. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's gross. Okay, so interpret for us, because <laughs> I thought like some of this maybe I get, and some of it, some of it maybe I'm missing. So tell us what it means.
1: Well, I so Clarissa pingola Estes gives such a beautiful analysis of the story. So the thing, this is what happens, is that the very thing that women need to be protected from is the thing that says it's going to protect them, right? And in the story, yep. it's really beautifully illustrated that like. Bluebeard says you'll be safe and have everything you need inside the house, but the thing that she needs to be protected from is Bluebeard himself. Right. Um, and he's promising all this providing and protection and prosperity in exchange for her remaining immature and in her naivete. But it's it's really him that's doing the violence, right? So Clarissa Bengal estes has this quote in her analysis that says, this fact is one of the central truths the youngest sister in the tale must acknowledge that all, and that all women must acknowledge that from within and without there is a force which will act in opposition to the instincts of the natural self, and that the malignant force is what it is. Though we might have mercy upon it, our first actions must be to recognize it, to protect ourselves from its devastations, and ultimately deprive it of its energy. Then this last quote um, from Esso saying, whatever dilemma a woman finds herself in the voices of the older sisters in her psyche continue to urge her to consciousness and to be wise in her choices. And they represent those voices in the back of our own minds that whisper the truths that a woman may wish to avoid for they end her fantasy of paradise found. Yeah. Mm. I don't know. Mm. I, okay. (laughs) That was a lot. So just tell me, tell me your reaction. I loved it. That was such great
0: analysis. Um, One thing that I'm just want to emphasize, that character doesn't represent men. It doesn't represent any one person, although you could make a case that some men actually do do it consciously if you think of, you know, sexual predators or whatever, like there's some cases where it is pretty deliberate. But most of the people we encounter, anybody I know personally, isn't doing it on purpose, but they're accidentally playing into these ancient, ancient, ancient systems. So. I thought like, yeah, next time this happens, I'm going to say that thing that just happened is bluebeard and I'm going to murder that. Sometimes it's in my own mind. Sometimes the bluebeard is a thought I have on myself, right? That says like, don't do that. That's dangerous. Or like, who are you to do that? Or just be quiet. Be What was it? Pretty pleasing and polite. Mm -hmm. And so that helps me to have this like symbol that I can stab in the heart with my sword and I'm not stabbing me in the heart with a sword. I'm just like, oh, there he is. There's Bluebeard. And it can take any form. And it's just bringing that system
1: into play. So that's one thing I thought of. Totally. But that, you- so I, I want to add to that that the reason why archety- archetypes can be so helpful is they help us do this differentiation that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Instead of villainizing other human beings, mm-hmm. we can say, no something about this situation triggered this bluebeard energy for them this mm-hmm. kind of fearful wanting to control things wanting to manipulate wanting to um hide and keep things under wraps and like you mm-hmm. said we all have that part of us that's like how dare you how dare mm-hmm. you speak against this right and it mm-hmm. rises up inside of us because it gets triggered unconsciously most of the time like you said Um, And being able to identify it with an archetype instead of with that person or with ourselves so intimately, right, helps us to, like, have enough distance from it to, to do the healing that we might need to do there, right? Right. Either in the relationship or just within our own selves. Absolutely. Women need to trust themselves and then and men need to trust and women men need to allow women <laughs> to make these decisions yep right right
0: okay so quickly we're gonna um we're gonna skip ahead and do one last story and we'll do it pretty quickly but I do want to cover the story of the red shoes so could you summarize that Bergen
1: yeah so the story of the red shoes is about a little girl This little girl is an orphan. She lives on her own out in the woods, out in nature, in the wilderness. And she's just kind of making her own way. She's, she finds, you know, berries and mushrooms and nuts and things to eat. And she makes friends with the animals and she gathers things and she's surviving and finds joy and pleasure in the little things. And she decides to make herself a pair of shoes. And so on her wanderings out in, in the woods, she finds little scraps of red fabric or or leather that she can slowly but surely kind of fashion herself a pair of red shoes. And eventually she gets enough that she's able to make shoes for both of her feet and she puts them on and it brings her so much joy and pleasure. Every time she looks at her shoes, she feels so proud of herself and so fulfilled with all of her hard work. Um, And it just brings her all this joy to look at her feet and to see these red shoes that she's made for herself. Um, And then one day she's walking along a a road um, and uh, a very rich old woman comes by in a carriage in a very fancy carriage with horses. And she has fancy clothes and she sees this little orphan girl on the side of the road and says, Come with me. I'm going to take you and um, I'll take care of you and give you everything you could ever want. Right. And so she takes the, the little girl in the carriage to her fancy house and um, and gives her everything she wants. She gives her new clothes and she takes her to a place to get shoes uh, to the cobbler. Right to get some new shoes. And she gets a pair of black shoes that are for every day. And then she sees this shiny pair of like patent leather, bright, um, brand new, uh, very expensive red shoes. The old woman has already taken the little girl's homemade red shoes and she burns them in the fire. And suddenly the girl wants these other red shoes, the very fancy red shoes, more than ever. And so she begs the old woman to buy the red shoes and she gets and she does get them, but she can only wear them for special occasions. Right. Um, And over time, I won't go into the details of of the middle section of the story, but um, essentially the girl becomes more and more obsessed with the red shoes and she wants to wear them all the time. And she wears them, she sneaks and she wears them to church one day. And the old woman doesn't want her to wear them to church because they're not humble looking. You know, they're too flashy and they're too, um, they call, they call too much attention to the girl for church, but she wears them to church anyways. And the old woman is, is partially blind. So she doesn't notice right. That the girl is wearing them. And there's um, an old soldier at the, at the doorway as she walks in with her new shoes and he mentions her shoes and taps them and uh, and essentially bewitches the, the red shoes. And um, eventually the shoes kind of take on a life of their own and they begin to dance without the girl's um, volition. They begin to dance and they itch and she can't stop dancing and she and the and the shoes start to dance off with her throughout through the church and down the street and into um, the cemetery and down into the village and she can't get the shoes off and she can't stop them and uh, I think eventually the woman and her carriage uh, driver get the girl and they pull the shoes off and they're very difficult to get off, but they're able to get the shoes off. Um, but then again, the girl becomes so obsessed with the shoes and she can't stop thinking about them and she wants them so much. And so she puts them on again and they begin to dance off with her. Um, and she just dances and dances and dances and becomes so exhausted. And she dances through the town and down the street to the next town and down through the, the villages all around and she eventually comes to um, a woodcutter, I believe, and, he, and she begs him to cut off her feet so that she can stop dancing. And he does, he cuts off her feet and the shoes go on dancing with her feet in them um, and become kind of like a ghost that like haunts, you know, the countryside and haunts all these little villages and towns um, dancing off. And she becomes a beggar that, you know, sits on the side of the road and begs and isn't able to walk. Um, because she's lost her feet so that's the story of the red shoes again <laughs> the end. I know these, <laughs> <So nice. laughs> these oh I honestly I think there's like some part of my soul that just yearns for these kinds of stories that don't have all these like very plastic happy endings you know yeah yep. and that that Clarissa Pinkola Estes is really this is a cautionary tale and it is yeah. very honest yeah it has this truthfulness to it that sometimes we don't get as women. Like we, we just hear all these fairy tales that it's happily ever after you get married and the, uh, to the Prince and the story ends. Mm-hmm. And we never talk about what happens after that, because what happens after that is, isn't, uh, isn't as appealing, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's right. The it's the hard part. And we want mm-hmm. women to stay in the fantasy. Mm-hmm. in the fantasy that if you are just pretty and young and beautiful and do what you're told, everything will be great. And the real story happens when we wake up to reality. Right. Mm-hmm. And I just love that Clarissa in these stories does not shy away from, you know, the gruesome parts of the, the really, the the roots of these fairy tales have these gruesome endings and patriarchy has like whitewashed them and made them, these other kinds of fantasies that don't really tell the truth about um, life. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So there's one quote from Estes where she kind of proposes an alternate ending of the story where if this little girl had just been able to stay alone in the forest, here's what might've happened instead. She says, if the child is left alone alone, Kind of like once she grows out of her homemade shoes, she will make another pair of red shoes and another and another until they are not so crude. She will progress even beyond her wondrous display of ingenuity and th- and thriving in difficult circumstances. The shining fact for her is that these shoes she has made cause her enormous joy. And joy is her life's blood, spirit food, and soul life all in one. So it's just like left me with this ache of what might have been if people hadn't meddled in this girl's um, journey of what she could have been and what she could have progressed to be if she'd just been left to make her own shoes the whole time.
1: And Esther says here at the end, even the most injured instincts can be healed. And to a right this, we resurrect the wild nature over and over again, each time the balance tips too far in one direction or the other. And it is kind of a balancing act of going into the dark, working with what you find there and then coming back up into the light and doing the work of integrating it into real life and then going again into the dark. It's a cycle. Um, It's that same kind of life, death life cycle that you'll find over and over again in the sacred feminine stories in this of like the seasons, you know, and the moon phases and the menstrual cycle and, Um, like they're always like coming up into the upper world and then going back down and then coming up and going down. And it's okay if you're in the up part right now, and it's okay if you're in the down part right now. Uh, and that, that is a process that happens of us dipping in and coming back out over and over anytime we need to. Uh, and yeah, having safe places to do that really, really helps.
0: Well, thank you, Bergen, for being a safe place for listeners to do that work. I felt like even just during this episode, I felt like you were holding my hand as we, you know, went into the basement with the young woman in, the, in Bluebeard's castle. And as we talked about the damage that can be done when somebody burns our shoes and we have to wear somebody else's shoes and you're just such a safe place. And I know that's really your life work is to facilitate people's growth and, Um, awareness and helping there be a safe place as people kind of undertake those really daunting journeys. I just want to thank you so much for being here today. I feel like I, you know, went on a journey myself and I am so grateful that you were my guest for this book. And I just want to thank you so much, Bergen, for being here. Thank you so much, Amy.